Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. to a place in our journey through the Gospel of Mark where we are going to get into the final chapters of Mark's Gospel today, and we will be covering a lot of ground. And so I'm glad you're with us to follow Jesus to the cross, and we are now going to see in these last moments of Jesus' life what he went through in order to purchase our salvation. And so uh, I hope that you'll join with us and follow along as we go through this. We're just going to go verse by verse through these last couple of chapters of Mark's gospel. And as we do that, I want you to know today a couple of things. There won't be any fill in the blanks. I usually like to give you some things to write down or uh, to use our app to fill in the blanks. We are just going to be walking through this text. Uh, Every single week when I preach, I stand on the back of spiritual giants, people who have uh, have given so much to provide resources, study material, commentaries. Uh, every week that's true. This week I'm especially grateful to uh, the ministry of Ben Stewart, uh, who provided a framework to cover all of this material and to help me know how to walk through this. And so I'm grateful for him and want to give credit where credit is due. But as you're watching with us today and, and worshiping with us, start with me in Mark chapter 14 and verse 1. And Mark records and says this, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now, the Passover feast is one of the major holiday celebrations in the Jewish culture. In fact, it's probably the largest, best-known celebration in Jewish culture. You would come to Jerusalem. People would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to participate in this event of Passover. Uh, It was a reflection back to the time that God led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt by passing over the homes of those who had put blood on their doorpost from the sacrifice of a lamb, an innocent, was given its life to provide life for the Jewish people and anyone who covered their home with the blood from that innocent lamb. When the Passover meal takes place, it's an annual occurrence that Jesus would have celebrated with his disciples multiple times, but it would be a time when people would flock to the city of Jerusalem. And so there were potentially up to 2 million people who had filled and flooded the city of Jerusalem during this time. Now, Jesus has been teaching all week in the temple courts. He has been showing the people who he is. He's been teaching about God. Last week, if you were with us and you saw in Mark's gospel in chapter 12, that Jesus told stories, he told parables, and he really riled things up, especially with the religious leaders. 
he talked about the idea that they were unworthy servants and tenants of God's kingdom and of God's people. And so Jesus was going to step in and become the worthy sacrifice. Now, I want you to notice as we begin this first section of scripture, when it says the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were two days away, the teachers of the law, the chief priest were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Now, I find that fascinating because what you see in this is that there was already a conviction in their mind and a way that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. The verdict was known even before the trial took place. And it says they wanted to do this secretly because of all the people. The people were for Jesus. And they, were, they loved him. They had fallen in love with his teachings. They had followed him in the temple courts. They had been with him. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the scribes, all of the Sanhedrin were so afraid of doing something that would rile up the people that the people might revolt against them. And worse yet, if there was some kind of a riot or a revolt, that maybe Rome would step in and oppress them even further than they already were. And so the, the religious leaders of this day wanted nothing to do with Jesus in public. They wanted to try to find a way to kill him. They want to kill him because they've labeled him as a troublemaker. And so what we see in this is that they get their answer to how in verse 10. If you skip ahead with me, look at verse 10. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity. To hand them over. So the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they now have a way to show how they're going to get to Jesus because one of his 12 is going to deny him. Now, it's fascinating because right in the middle of these two events, the Pharisees wanting to kill him, Judas going to them, Mark gives us another story. And it's nestled right here. We're not going to spend a lot of time right here. In fact, I'm not even going to read this fully, but I want us to see this. When you look in verses three through nine, you're going to see Jesus at a dinner party. And it's just a day before the Passover. It's just before he's going to go to the cross. And in this moment, he's sitting at a, uh, at a meal with his disciples, with other people. Some of the Pharisees are there. The religious leaders are always following Jesus around. And a woman comes in with an alabaster jar of pure nard. And she comes in and she breaks the jar open and pours it on Jesus' head. Now, this is what's amazing about this. This alabaster jar, it would have been a, uh, nard was a fragrance from India. And she would have had this, the, we're told in another text that it was worth about 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages. That's a lot of money for these people. This is probably a family heirloom, something that's been passed down from generation to generation within her family. And she comes in and she, the only way you can get to the nard in this jar is to break it open and to pour it out. And so she does that. She pours this nard which is a strong smelling fragrance. I don't know if you've ever smelled pure nard before, but it's powerful. It's fragrant. And she pours it on the head of Jesus. And people immediately start condemning her and going, what are you doing? You shouldn't waste all of that. It's a waste to do that. You should have given that money to the poor. We could have sold that and given money to the poor. And so Jesus has to correct them. And he says, listen, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me with you. What she has done is good, and she has prepared me for burial. See, here's the thing. The religious leaders wanted to do this secretly. They wanted to find Jesus and kill him secretly, but Jesus already knows their plans. What they're doing is not secret. Jesus knows 
Because Jesus is in control of this whole thing. This is God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross. It is God's plan for Jesus to endure the sufferings and beatings that he's going to endure in order to bring salvation to us. And so he says, she has done this as a way to prepare me. Jesus is going to be crucified on Passover and going into the Sabbath, there's not going to be enough time for his body to be rightly prepared for burial. And so this is a sacrifice to prepare his body for burial. And then Jesus says this uh, in verse nine, he says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. See, Jesus knows this isn't the end of the story. He's going to die. He knows that. But he knows also that he's going to come back to life. And he knows that there is going to be a gospel, his story, that's going to be told throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, to all of the world. And he says, and when it is, her story will be told. And so here we are today, in 2020, telling her story of the sacrifice she made to anoint Jesus. This is nestled in the middle of this story, and I think it's here for a reason. You see with the religious leaders that they want to condemn Jesus and kill Jesus. You see from Judas that he wants to get paid. He doesn't like the Messiah that Jesus has turned out to be, so he wants to profit from Jesus. There are people who want to get rid of him. There are people who want to profit from him. But right in the middle of that story is this woman who comes, and she anoints Jesus. She doesn't want anything from him. She wants to honor him. She wants to bring him glory. She wants to give her very best to him. This is the call of our lives. However you feel like you're treating Jesus, it should be a matter of worship, of giving honor, of giving glory, that you don't want anything from Jesus. We don't come to Jesus and accept him into our life as our savior, as our king, as our Lord, so that we can get something from him. We come to him because he's worthy, because he alone is our Messiah, our king, our savior, and our Lord. And so we see that she wants to glorify him. Now we're going to move ahead to verse 12, Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. So make preparations for us there. So Jesus sends a couple of his disciples into Jerusalem. He says, here's what you're going to find. There's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. That was unusual because typically that was a woman's responsibility. You see that throughout scripture, that women would go to a well, fill up a bottle of water or a jar of water, carry it back. That's consistent through all of scripture. And so when Jesus says, when you go into this crowded, bustling city, up to 2 million people flooding around, he goes, you're going to find a man who's carrying a jar of water. Go with him. The house that he goes to asks the master there, where may our master eat the Passover meal? So Jesus Jesus has already made preparations for the meal to take place. Now the disciples are going to go and they're going to make all of the arrangements for the meal. Now look at verse 17 or 16, excuse me. The disciples left. They went into the city and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. 
And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me, right? Now, when we read this, it would be really easy for us to read into the story a little bit. And Jesus tells his disciples in this really grand meal in this amazing time, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And we could immediately think that they would all go, oh my gosh, Judas, how could you do this? Like they're going to look down the table, find Judas and just immediately accuse him because he's the bad guy in the story. But they don't do that. It's amazing because as Jesus tells them this to a person, they all look around at each other and go, surely, Lord, you don't mean me. Is it me? Will I be the one that, that goes against you? See, all of us in our hearts have this capacity, this propensity to turn away from God, to want things for ourselves, to want to gain glory for ourselves, that we would go against the things of God and fall in sin. And so there's this idea in the middle of this that just because Judas is the character who will betray Jesus, he's not the one that everyone assumes. They all assume themselves. And we should. If you're a person who believes that you could never do anything to disappoint Jesus, that you could never do anything to go against Jesus, you need to think again. Because all of us have that capacity within us to turn from the one that has loved us with all measure of love and grace and mercy and go against him. And so we see all of the disciples start asking the question, is it me? This was a time of intimacy that's shared with friends, but things are happening just as scripture said they would. In fact, Jesus points this out, that he's going to be betrayed by someone who's eating bread with him. In Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, there's a prophecy about this. It says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now, what Jesus is going to do next is continue through the Passover. And he's going to come to the part of the meal where they take the elements of the meal, things that have symbolic meaning, things that look back to the past, the things that Israel has been through, the meal and the ceremony that God gave to his people to celebrate their removal from slavery in Egypt into freedom out of captivity and bondage into freedom. And now Jesus is going to take these things and he's going to look at the elements of the Passover and he's going to say all of these things from our past that are thousands of years old have always been pointing forward to something in the future. And now that's come full circle and it's found in me. And so Jesus takes first the bread and he breaks it. And what Jesus is supposed to say in this moment is something different than what he gives to them. He's going to talk about this Passover meal in a different light because this is all pointing forward to him. So look with me at verses 22 through 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And I want us to stop there for just a second. There were four courses in the Passover meal, and each one of them had a cup of wine associated with it. So during the meal, you would eat a course, drink a cup of wine, eat a course, drink a cup of wine, and all of the different courses represented different things from their bondage and slavery and from their escape in, out of captivity and into freedom. And so what Jesus is supposed to say in this course when he takes this meal is that he's supposed to say um, that there is something that's been broken for the people. It represents their affliction. And now he takes it and he says, this no longer represents the affliction of my people. This is now about my body. This is my body. And so he's going to talk about and break the bread and pass it out to them. 
and say the brokenness of this bread represents what's going to happen to me. It used to represent the affliction of our people as they were in slavery in Egypt and coming out of that. Now it's going to reflect me. And so then in the same manner, Jesus is going to take the cup. By this time, this would have been the third cup of the meal. And so here's what you see in verse 23. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. And so what we see in this is that when Jesus takes this cup, there was something, a script that he was supposed to say. Every Jewish person who celebrates the Passover has a script they follow. And there are things that they say all throughout the meal. Again, it's looking back at what they've experienced. And now Jesus is taking all of those things that have been about the past and he's bringing them into the present. He's saying this is fulfilled in me. And so what was supposed to have been said with this third cup was, may the all merciful one make us all worthy of the days of Messiah. And so as he takes this cup, what would have been said forever in the Jewish tradition was as we drink this cup, there needs to be a giving of God's grace so that we're all worthy of the day Messiah will come. And instead, when Jesus takes the cup and holds it in front of himself, he says, this is my blood. He doesn't say, may God make us worthy of the days of Messiah. He says, I am Messiah here in this day, worthy. And so Jesus stands before his disciples and he lets them know, this is about me this is my blood. This cup is about me. I will die. I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for many. He knows his death is going to bring a new binding covenant between God the Father and us as his people. And so in the covenant that God's going to give, a covenant of grace, not of anything that we have to earn, not of anything that we deserve, but simply a covenant of grace, Jesus says, this is my blood and it's going to be poured out for many. He knows this is for people. He knows this is to bring others into redemption in a relationship with God that's never existed before. He knows this is our only way to have relationship with God, to have our sins forgiven. We have to partake in the blood of Christ. And so he holds out this cup and he says, this is about me. This is my blood. Then there's supposed to be a fourth cup. Look again at verse 25. He says, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so this time Jesus holds up the fourth cup and he says, not yet. I'm not going to engage in this one yet because this fourth cup was the cup of consummation. It was the cup that was meant to show us that God was working for relationship with us. And he says, this cup will not be drank again until I'm with you in my kingdom. This is the cup we're waiting for to drink with Jesus at the celebration and the marriage supper of the lamb when we're all together consummating the relationship that Jesus has made possible for us with God. And so he points to this cup and he says, we're not going to drink this one yet because this one has a future fulfillment in the kingdom. Now, when you think about this, the new covenant was not inaugurated by the blood of a lamb but by the blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, you would sacrifice a lamb in order to have your sins forgiven. In the new covenant, Jesus says, I am the lamb. I'm the one who's gonna give my life to save people from their sins. And so Isaiah had looked ahead to this day and he wrote about the Messiah in Isaiah 53, four through six. He says, surely 
He took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the thing that's fascinating is this, is that Jesus puts this cup aside and he says, I'm not going to drink this again until after everything that's been written about me is fulfilled. Then we see in verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. More than likely, the hymn that they sung was a Hillel hymn from Psalm 116 through 118. And they would have sung this together. There's fascinating things in that. I would encourage you to go back and look at Psalm 116 to 118. But one of the things that's in there, it talks about death. It talks about a servant who's going to give his life. It talks about so many different things. But in chapter 18, 118, it goes back to something we looked at last week in Mark chapter 12, a passage that Jesus quoted directly that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's a new building that's coming. And he says, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so what we see in this is that Jesus with his disciples sings this song about one who's going to go and give his life and who's going to, uh, to become the cornerstone of a new reality, a new relationship with God, a new covenant. And it's the covenant that gives us access into God's kingdom and into the church. Jesus is going to be the cornerstone that the church is built on. And so he sings about this with his disciples, and then they go out to a garden setting on the Mount of Olives. And when they get there, Jesus has a conversation with them. Look at verse 27. He says, You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's a quote directly from Zechariah 13, 7. He says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And so Jesus knows he's going to die. And he knows he's going to live again. He tells them, when I come back, I'll meet you in Galilee. So he's already projecting, predicting, prophesying that he's not just going to die. He's going to come back to life. And yet they're stuck on the idea that he's going to die. And Peter says, even if all people disown you, I won't. I will die with you. And Jesus tells him, no, tonight, Peter, you're going to disown me three times. And all the other disciples come in and go, no, 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 we're the same. We're with Peter. We're not going to deny you. We're not going to ever disown you. We will be with you to the very end. And Jesus knows they don't have a clue about what's coming. He just drops it. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't give them another thought. He just drops it. And he moves forward because they have no clue what's coming. Look at verses 32 through 36. So they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. Then going a little farther, 
he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, again, we're talking about a cup. We've just had the two cups that were part of the celebration of Passover. And now Jesus is talking about another cup as he prays to God. He says, if it's possible and everything's possible with you, would you take this cup from me? But this isn't a cup from the Passover meal. Jesus is now talking about the cup of God's wrath. He's talking about the cup that the Old Testament prophets would talk about. Jeremiah, the Psalms, Zechariah, Isaiah, when they talked about the cup, it was always a cup of wrath. It was a cup of God being poured out against sin. And now Jesus in this moment in the garden, Mark gives us the strongest language he can possibly use. He tells us, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was deeply distressed. Other gospels will tell us that Jesus was so distressed that as he prayed and as he cried out to God that he began sweating drops of blood, that his capillaries under his skin were bursting from the pressure that he was under. And in those moments, he cries out, Abba, Father. No one talked to God like that. We have no record in Jewish or Palestinian writings up until this time that say anything about someone addressing God as Abba. It's a term of endearment. It's like saying dad or daddy. Jesus is crying out to his father. No one talks like this to God. But Jesus, in the moment of his distress, he says, you can do anything. If it's possible, would you remove this cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus is not distressed about dying. There are worse things than death. Jesus has told us previously, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy your body and do nothing else to you. Fear the one who can destroy your body and throw your soul into hell. That's who we should fear. He's not afraid of dying. His fear, his distress comes from the idea of being separated from God and bearing the weight of sin and the wrath of God against our sins. That he's going to be broken for us. He's going to have God's wrath and judgment against sin poured out on him. And he says, if it's possible, take the cup. But nonetheless... Not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus in this moment lays himself before his father and he says, I'll submit to you. And the difficult thing about this whole story is there is no other way. There is no other sacrifice. There's no other option. For God to forgive our sins, he has to punish the lamb. And Jesus is that spotless lamb. He's the one who's going to go to the cross for us. He's going to take the wrath of God against sin for us, for you. And so he cries out in this moment. And then it says in verse 37 that he returns to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then once more, he went away again and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
Now, I have to be honest with you. On some level, I give a pass to the disciples for being asleep in these moments. They don't understand fully what Jesus is going through. They don't understand that there is life and death in the balance, that the wrath of God is about to be poured out against the entire world. They don't understand. And if you're anything like me, after having a large meal, like we might on Thanksgiving, when they've celebrated Passover, and there's been multiple cups of wine drank at the same time, I can imagine them late at night being sleepy. And so Jesus has asked them to pray, not for him necessarily. He says, couldn't you pray? You need to pray for yourself. The temptation won't come against you. He asked them to pray for themselves. They can't even do that. They're sleepy. And yet Jesus comes and he says, the time has come that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Then we get to verse 43. And it says, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs. They were sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, the betrayer had come and arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judah said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And so what we see in this is that Judas has worked out a system. He's going to bring these thugs with him into the garden. They come with clubs and swords and torches. And Judas says, we're going to go in secret, in private, and we're going to arrest Jesus. And he even gives them a, a signal to follow. It's dark. It's difficult to see people and to make out their faces. And so to know who's who, he says, I'm going to go to the man and I'm going to speak to him and the one that I kiss on the cheek is the one that you should arrest. And so Judas goes and he calls him rabbi. And then he kisses him on the cheek. To call someone rabbi was a title of honor to give to them. To kiss someone is a symbol of affection. Judas takes this idea of saying, I honor you as my rabbi. I celebrate you and I have affection for you as a friend. I'm going to kiss you. He takes that and he twists it and he distorts it into the object that he's going to use to be treacherous against Jesus. And so then you're going to see what takes place in verses 46 and following. The men seized Jesus and they arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We're told in another gospel that that's Peter. Peter's pretty impetuous. He draws a sword. Actually, it might have been more like a fishing knife. And he just lunges at a guy and he misses his whole body and just kind of grazes the side of his face and cuts off his ear. And then Jesus speaks in verse 48 and says, Am I leading a rebellion? Said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. And so Jesus looks at these men and he goes, I know you guys. You're from the temple guard. I've been there all week this week. I've seen you. You're part of the religious leaders crowd. And all week long, I was there with you in the temple. You had opportunities all week to come and get me and do something with me. And he says, but this is a matter of scripture being fulfilled. The darkness may have its time. And so he says, I know this is coming and it's for that purpose. And then what Jesus had prophesied and what Zechariah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier happens. All the disciples run. They flee. He even says in verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So I don't know what you want to do with that, but it's there. So this man just ran away. Some people think this is actually Mark inserting himself into the story. 
that he was there. He wasn't one of the 12, but that he was with them on that night. And then maybe Mark puts himself in the story. Verse 53 says, They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. And Peter, who had run, actually followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and he warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. In verse 57, it says, Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And so Jesus is going to move into this religious trial. There are going to be multiple trials during this night. We're going to see in Mark's gospel a religious trial and then move to a civil trial. But in this religious trial, there's accusations that have been brought up. Remember, they've already decided the verdict. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. But they can't make their testimonies agree. They've had time to plan this. They've brought together a group of people, the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. They're all in this place together. And they've had time to get ready for this trial. And now as Jesus stands there, they can't even get their testimonies to line up. And so Jesus just stands there. He doesn't say anything. What's he supposed to say? The high priest steps down and asks, aren't you going to answer all of these charges being brought against you, don't you have something to say to yourself? And Jesus has to be thinking, answer what? What am I supposed to say? Nobody has a same testimony against me. How is Jesus supposed to answer these charges? They're trumped up, they're false. And so we move on. In verse 61, it says, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now pay attention to this. This is powerful. This entire time, Jesus has not availed himself to answer these trumped up charges. But now he's going to basically condemn himself. The high priest asks him a question. Are you the Messiah? And as you read through the Gospels, you're going to see over and over again, Jesus will give this answer to his followers, his closest friends, his disciples. He tell them in language that's pretty plain that he is the Christ, the Messiah that's come to rescue the world. But with the crowds and with the religious leaders, he's always talked in very veiled language. He's never been specific. He's never given anything up about himself because it was too early. Now in this moment when he's on trial and the high priest says, are you the Messiah, the son of God? He says, I am. That's the name of God, by the way. When God represented himself to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness before he sent him to rescue the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses said, who should I tell the people sent me? God said, I am. You tell them I am sent you. And now Jesus, when asked, are you the Messiah? He says, I am. But he doesn't stop there. He quotes from the Old Testament in Daniel and he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You don't sit in the presence of the monarch. But Jesus says, when God comes, I'll be in his court. I'll be seated at his right hand. That's the place of honor. And he says, I am the Messiah. 
And when God comes back, I will be with him, seated at his right hand. And he says, you think I'm on trial here today, but the reality is I'm the judge of the world. I'm the ruler of the universe, and you are on trial here today. And when I come back in all of the Father's glory, I'll be seated at his right hand in the seat of judgment, in the seat of glory with my Father. And here's what we see the high priest do in verse 63. It says, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, here's what's amazing about that. If you go back in Scripture into the Old Testament, you're going to see some things in Leviticus in chapter 10 and chapter 21 where the high priest, according to the law, is not allowed to rip his clothes. It would have been an act that would disqualify him for a period of time from service. It would have made him unclean as the priest. And on this night leading into Passover, the high priest tears his garments. He disqualifies himself. On the next day when Passover is supposed to take place and the lambs are supposed to be slaughtered, there is now no high priest to enact that. He's disqualified himself. Jesus is going to go to the cross as the Lamb of God. But Hebrews will tell us that he also is the great high priest. When Jesus goes to the cross, he offers himself as a sacrifice. He is the priest who gives his life up for our sins. We're told in Scripture that Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down. He is the high priest who gives himself as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God. And so the priest does this. Then he charges him of blasphemy. It's not blasphemy because it's true. Jesus is the Son of God. He can make this claim. But they don't seek to ask the question, is he telling the truth? Should we explore this a little further? Is he the Messiah that we've been waiting for? They just scream blasphemy and they just start to, to end this trial. It says, they all condemned him as unworthy of death. Verse 65, then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Everything Jesus had prophesied and said would happen is taking place. And now we're going to see what takes place with Peter. And you're, we're not going to read this section of the story, but Peter, who's been in the courtyard at a distance, he's been found as someone who's a follower of Jesus. He's been accused multiple times. Aren't you with him? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he keeps saying, no, I'm not. He calls down curses from heaven. He starts to swear. He goes back into this bad old habits that he had in his life before Jesus. And it says, and there's a rooster that crows. And Peter realizes he's denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would, and he ran and he broke down, and he cried, and he abandons Jesus. And now Jesus is going to be taken to his next trial, to a civil trial. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 15. And verse 1 says, Very early in the morning, around dawn, probably about 6 a.m., the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound him, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. And so here's what we find in this part of the story. When the chief priests take Jesus to Pilate, they're going to see that they don't actually bring a charge to Pilate or, or not written in this account, but they don't give him anything that's religious. They start talking about him as a king. This is sedition. 
This is someone who's bringing an uprising against Rome and against Caesar. And so they charge him of these things. They don't say he's, he's claimed to, uh, to be a Messiah. They say he's claimed to be king of the Jews. And so when Pilate sees him, he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? This is to become a civil matter, not a religious. If they had said something else, he would have gone, this is, that's a religious matter. Take him back and deal with him yourself. They put it in his court. And Jesus gives an answer. Actually, when Pilate says this, in the Greek text, the word you would have come first. So he basically says, you, the king of the Jews. He's almost amazed. Like, you, you're the one leading this rebellion, this uprising. You're the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, you have said so. Actually, in the Greek, it would have been a much smaller phrase. It would have just said, you say. Jesus, in other words, is giving Pilate what he needs to keep the trial going. He says, you say. I am a king, but not like you believe. And so he says, you say I'm a king. And then verse 3 says, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Most often when someone stands convicted of of treason or blasphemy and they're being placed in front of Pilate and asked for a death sentence. They'll babble on and on and they'll try to, to win their case and they'll try to present the arguments for themselves why they shouldn't be killed. Jesus doesn't say anything. He just stands in the middle of his accusers and he doesn't speak. And it says Pilate's amazed. He's never seen anything like this. He's never seen a man stand silently in front of his accusers when death is on the line. And so it says in verse 6, Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people that they requested, whom the people requested. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas Instead, And so Barabbas basically brings out two men and stands them in front of the crowd. One who is literally an insurrectionist who had murdered Romans in trying to start an uprival against an upheaval against Rome. And he says, if you guys are saying that this man is an insurrectionist, that this man is a king who's trying to lead a revolt, I'll show you someone who's an insurrectionist. And he puts Barabbas and Jesus side by side. And he says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to call for Barabbas to be free, not Jesus. Here's what's amazing to me about that. They wanted a Messiah who was going to be a military leader and who would bring a revolt against Rome and bring Israel back. And now what they're accusing Jesus of is being a religious leader, a military leader who's raiding against Rome and bringing an insurrection against Rome. And yet it's not what they want. That's what they're supposed to want, but it's not what they want. And so they put Barabbas in front of the crowd and they start saying, release Barabbas, release Barabbas. And then Pilate says, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? Look at the crowd's response, verse 13. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And so Pilate doesn't stand in authority. He's afraid of the crowds. We're told in another gospel that the chief priests have said, if you don't do what we want, we're going to tell you that you're, we're going to tell Caesar you're no friend to him. Pilate's already not in good standing with Caesar. And so he's afraid now of the religious leaders. He's afraid of the crowd and he just goes along with it. He has no charges against Jesus. 
In fact, we're told that he, he wants to wash his hands of this and says, the blood of Jesus is on your hands. And they just shout, crucify him all the louder. Verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, again and again. They struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. And so here's what we're going to see in this. We're not, Paul, Mark doesn't give us the story of flogging, and I'm not going to go into great detail about that. But a whip would have been taken with multiple ends. Sometimes we call it a cat of nine tails. And embedded in that whip, that leather strap, would have been pieces of bone and metal. And they would have brought it across Jesus' body. It would have hooked into his skin, and then they would rip out his flesh. And over and over again, Jesus was beaten and flogged mercilessly. We're told by the historian Josephus that on two accounts, the floggings were so severe that you could see the inside of a man, his bone and his internal organs. So Jesus is lacerated. His back is flayed open. And it says that they kept beating him on the head. They put a crown of thorns on him and then they smashed it into his skull with a staff. And I have to think back to the story we talked about earlier where Mary poured nard on Jesus' head. That fragrance that's so strong that now as Jesus has sweat and blood falling over his face, if he could smell that nard. I've often wondered if it brought him any comfort in the middle of his trial that what Mary had done mattered to him in those moments. And that as he was going to go to the cross, that he would still maintain that sense of dignity and honor because she had shown him love and grace and mercy. And so again, we're told he's led out to be crucified. Verse 21 says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, who's the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in, front, in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This would have been like a narcotic to dampen his senses, to dull his senses, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Again, Mark doesn't give us great details, but they would have driven spikes in his hands and his feet through the nerve centers so that it was excruciating. Crucifixion was not a form of death that was expedient. It wasn't even a good form of death. It was meant to be agonizing. It was meant to be a statement. They would take and crucify people along Roman roads into the cities to show if you go against Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. And for hours, Jesus is going to agonize on the cross, pushing up on nails in his hands and his feet to draw breath. Because asphyxiation is one of the things that, that happens to you as you're dying on a cross. It says, it says in verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who had passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that they may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. They've charged Jesus of blasphemy. And now here they stand at the foot of the cross of the Son of God, ridiculing him, mocking him, blaspheming him. And through this entire thing, Jesus is dying for our sins. And they keep saying, come down off the cross. You should come down. If you want to prove you're the Messiah, save yourself. And we know if we go back and we look at Mark's gospel earlier where Peter had a question about this for Jesus and Jesus had said, the son of man is going to go to a cross and be crucified and killed. And Peter drags him away and says, you don't talk like that. You can't talk about dying and death. That's not the way you should be talking. That's not the Messiah we're looking for. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's a satanic idea for Jesus not to die on this cross. This is from the gates of hell for them to be saying, if you're the Messiah, come down. Jesus being the Messiah proves that he's the Messiah by giving his life. And so it goes on, verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark records this to tell us this is a miracle. It doesn't get dark at noon. Something spectacular is happening here. Jesus has gone to the cross, and the Son of God is giving his life. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The people who are standing at the foot of the cross, they said when he's heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. They didn't have J's in their language to determine these things. So Eli, Eloi, Eloi sounds a lot like Eli. They think he's calling for Elijah to come and take him off of the cross. And so it says that they dip a a sponge in wine vinegar and they put it up to Jesus, offering it to him to drink. They wet his mouth. They're not doing that to have mercy on him. I think they're mocking him. I think they're making fun of him. They want to hear, keep hearing him scream out in pain and keep hearing the crazy things that he's saying. And so they wet his mouth. And then Jesus cries out, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now here's how we know that Jesus doesn't die from asphyxiation. You don't asphyxiate screaming out. It says he cried out. We're told in another passage that he says, it is finished. And with that, he breathed his last. More likely than not, Jesus' heart ruptured. We're told that when they came to make sure Jesus was actually dead, they didn't break his legs, which was prophetic, that he would not have bones broken, but they pierced his side right up into his heart cavity, his chest cavity, and blood and water flowed. That's a sign of his heart being under severe stress. He probably died of a massive heart attack and heart failure. He knew he was about to die because he knew what was going on inside of him internally, and he cried out, It's finished. Everything Jesus had come to do, he's done. In verse 38, it says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And so what we see in this is that another miraculous event takes place. The curtain in the temple which was where the priest would go in to offer the sacrifice of blood in the Holy of Holies. It was a dividing place. Only the high priest could go into that area and only once a year to represent God and the people. 
And it says the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom to show that it wasn't done by man, it was done by God. Making way now and access for all men to go into the Holy of Holies. To have access directly to God the Father. To be able to call him our Father the same way Jesus did. Abba, our Father, the one who's intimate with us and close to us. All made possible by Jesus. And then we see a soldier at the foot of the cross a man who would have had no history with Jesus, but he's watched these events unfold over the hours of Jesus' crucifixion, and he says, surely this man was the Son of God. That's what you would call Caesar. The Roman soldier would have called Caesar the Son of God. He would have been considered a deity, and yet when he sees this man hanging on a cross, he says this, this is what deity looks like. And so for us, when we think about this, Jesus has to die on our behalf to give us access to the Father through that curtain. John Owen wrote in one of his books, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. If we're going to have our sins paid for, it has to come through the death of Christ. And so that's where I want to leave us this morning. We've come to the end of Jesus's gospel. We started the story back at Easter in chapter 16. And now we get to the place of the cross. This is what the entire journey through Mark's gospel has been leading to. This journey to the cross. We've followed Christ here. We've seen his life. We've seen his death. We've talked about his resurrection. And we know that life for us is only possible through him. And so this morning, or as you're watching this service, wherever you may be and whenever it may be, I want to challenge you today to think about your relationship with Jesus. Have you seen him as your Messiah? Have you accepted him as your Lord? Do you know him as your King? Because it's only through him that you can have life and peace and hope. Everything else in this world that you're gonna explore and try to find hope and peace and life in are gonna leave you empty. Jesus will fulfill you in a way that nothing else can. And so we see Jesus give up his life so that you and I can have life. And so the simple invitation this morning is for you to think about who you are in a relationship with God, who you are in relationship to Jesus. And I want to ask you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you've never confessed your sins to him and given your life to him in subject uh, in, in subjugation, if you've never placed yourself before him and said, I want to surrender to you fully as my God and my King, let today be the day you do that. Jesus loves you. His love for you is shown by the extent he was willing to go to purchase your freedom. He was in full control of these events. Everything that happened was led by Jesus. He goes as the great high priest to a cross to be the great sacrifice, the one and only atoning sacrifice for sins. So today, forgiveness of your sins is available. You simply must receive it. And you do that by confessing your sins to God. Repent of those sins, turn away from them, and then follow Jesus. Be baptized into his family and experience the fullness of His grace. 
Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.